from UNH Cooperative Extension. This is Overinformed on Fruit IPM. podcast listeners. Have you or any of your loved ones earned a PhD recently? For the most part, it's a pretty traumatic experience. Taking a bright young person and convincing them that although they thought they were pretty smart, nope, no, not at all. You really don't know anything. (laughs) Also, especially for you scientists out there, you should probably get over thinking that you're a smart person real fast because the crushing maw of the unknown is about to hit you. And nothing epitomizes this feeling more than a PhD student's qualifying exams. Every university department is a little different, but every PhD student has to prove at some point that they are a worthy candidate for the degree. This is through a grueling process of written and oral examinations. These examinations can take days or weeks and are administered by a committee of several professors, although technically anyone is welcome to take part in the questioning. And anything can be asked. Anything. As you can imagine, as with most traumatic experiences, every PhD will have a moment that sticks with them from their qualifying exams when they talk about long after that exam. A friend of mine told me about a question she got hung up on during her qualifiers. uh, What is the best way to learn something new? She spent lots of time talking about how she goes about conducting a literature review, what the best journals were for the topic, the best books, the best online resources, and on and on. But her inquisitor was still unhappy. <sighs> Finally, she gave up, and the answer the committee member was looking for was, ask an expert. Well, that certainly stuck with me. And this certainly will be a theme throughout this whole series. It's a lot faster to ask someone who knows because they've been up to their eyeballs in the topic, perhaps because they have spent the past three to five years studying that insect for their PhD or the past 20 years studying a system because it's affecting a commodity that's part of their job description or because that insect has thrust itself upon you as an invasive or an outbreak pest in your area. I am new to New Hampshire. Well, I'm originally from New Hampshire. I grew up here, Um, but it's been about 20 years since I left, and I'm new to New Hampshire as an entomologist. I've heard a couple people mention winter moth, and I kind of panicked a bit because I don't know what it is. Um, I don't know anything about the biology or the pest status of the insect, where it was, or what to do if an apple grower or a blueberry grower had a question for me about it. So I asked an expert. My name is Heather Fobert, and I'm a research associate at the University of Rhode Island. I'm in the plant sciences and entomology department, but I really do cooperative extension work. But wait, before Heather and I overinform you on winter moth, let's start with the basics. With a common name as simple as winter moth, it's important to emphasize that this is the invasive geometrid moth from Europe we're talking about here, first introduced in North America up in Nova Scotia in the 1930s. Winter moth is unusually cold tolerant, and it lays its eggs on tree hosts as late as November or December. Um, These eggs overwinter, and they hatch very early in the spring. Damage is done to plants when these larvae feed on the new buds of apple trees, pear trees, and in blueberry bushes. These are the buds that lead to fruits, so losing these buds to winter moth will lead to yield loss in these fruiting crops. 
Fruit growers who are worried about winter moth should scout during tight cluster. However, winter moth could be considered a sporadic pest or one that is only serious in outbreak years. So for most of you, you will not be impacted by winter moth. But speaking of outbreak years, back to Heather. My life started getting taken over by caterpillars like 2005. And it really, with the winter moth, I started just doing a whole lot of work with winter moth, both with Joe Elkington, and I've been doing monitoring and trying to help growers for, you know, when they should be making applications. So anyway, we started seeing winter moth in Rhode Island in 2004, thereabouts. You know, I came into the Cape Cod in like the 1990s, and it spread from there. So spreading from uh, Nova Scotia, because it's been in Nova Scotia since the 1930s. But it got into Cape Cod in the 1990s and then sort of spread out. So the female doesn't fly, so the, the spread is usually pretty slow as it's been. And the, when the, once the population gets huge, I was recommending the grower spray right at, um, at, at egg hatch. And egg hatch was happening, it's really right around uh, like Macintosh green tip, which is really early in the season. So green tip is when the apple, the apple flower buds, they just start cracking open and there's a little bit of green tissue showing. So it's, this is like the first tissue showing. And around here, it's usually like right in the beginning of April. What happens is that the overwintering eggs that are on, that are on the bark of the winter moth, they hatch. And then the little caterpillars just sort of wriggle into the buds. They don't even, they don't chew their way in, they wriggle their way in. I was having people put on pesticides right then to try and stop them from getting into the flower buds because the population was so high, you couldn't like just let a few of them in uh, and then spray a little bit later. But does it sound like the best approach is to find something that smothers the eggs or are you actually trying to get the larvae before they wriggle into the buds? Right. So the the problem is that um, there's probably not that many overwintering eggs in the actual orchard. I mean, it depends what happened the year before, but let's say in a commercial orchard, you've been controlling the winter moth in your orchard, so you don't have a huge number. So, but the problem is that a lot of our orchards are small and they're surrounded by trees, you know, they're surrounded by woods, and then the, the caterpillars, once they hatch, can balloon into the orchard. So even if you go and smother the eggs that are in your orchard or in your blueberry patch, um, you, you know, you're not stopping the ones from ballooning. I'm going to jump in here and define ballooning for you. Uh, for all you Charlotte's web fans out there, you'll remember at the end, uh, when all of Charlotte's babies floated away in the wind, um, after spoiler alert, after Charlotte dies, which I guess fits in with this episode's theme of traumatic memories sticking with you because that stuck with me. Anyway, many species of immature spiders and some young caterpillars are known to balloon or release a silk thread. These small threads allow a very small bug to catch enough wind resistance to carry them through the air, usually pretty short distances, but it definitely depends on where the wind takes them. Back to Heather. So in all of Rhode Island now, it's, you know, we're now, what, 14 years later, natural enemies have just sort of built up and the population of winter moth isn't as large as it used to be. Plus, we've released a biocontrol agent that is also contributing to the control of winter moth, this tachinid fly that you may have heard of, this uh, fly that attacks only winter moth. So that's been released in 44 locations in, in excuse me, in New England, uh, mostly Massachusetts, but up through Maine and, and down to Connecticut. 
and, and you know of course including Rhode Island so it's been released in 44 locations and this fly has been recovered in I forget I think it's 36 locations something like that it's um Joe Elkington out of UMass wonderful entomologist you know he's a forest entomologist and has just worked on you know gypsy moths and lot, lots and lots of Lots of insects over his career. So in, in Nova Scotia, they released, I think, three different parasitoids against winter moth back in the 1950s. And the one that was really specific and seemed to be doing the most good was this tachinid fly. It's called Cezanus uh, albicans. And it's kind of, I think it's unique. I mean, it's probably not unique, but I don't know any other biocontrol agent that works this way. The fly lays its eggs on leaves in areas where there's high populations of winter moths, they lay their eggs on the leaves and then the winter moth caterpillar consumes the leaves and accidentally eats the eggs and then an egg and then the egg uh, you know, hatches and develops inside the, the caterpillar. And then come pupation time, uh, you'll get the fly pupating rather than uh, a winter moth. fascinating system. I'm so glad I got a chance to ask Heather about this. And while I was at it, I was curious about gypsy moth. Now, you may be familiar with gypsy moth. It's a forest pest of historical importance, and it's named as one of the most damaging forest pests in the world. Uh, the larvae are voracious eaters, and they have a pretty wide host range, eating pretty much any tree they come into contact with. Gypsy moth was introduced to the United States in 1869 in Medford, Mass. Uh, for you Doug Pfeiffer fans out there, that's just down the road from where he grew up, kind of. But the introduction was accidental by an entomologist who was hoping to interbreed gypsy moth with silk moths to create a brand new silk industry in North America. Silk moths are pretty finicky eaters, um, so it may have been a great idea to breed them with an insect with such a wide host range until they got out. He did his best to inform the proper authorities, but his warnings fell on deaf ears, and here we are. Like winter moth, gypsy moth is slow to spread on its own, but it does wreak havoc on forests when it does. Efforts to slow the spread of gypsy moth are ongoing in the mid-Atlantic and southern states, but gypsy moth has been here in New England ever since the 1860s, and every once in a while, sporadically, it becomes a pretty serious pest of tree fruit. I asked Heather about what we know about the cause of gypsy moth outbreaks. All right. So, yeah, we are just getting out of, well, just we didn't have problems last year in 2018, uh, but we were, had huge gypsy moth numbers in 2015, 16, and 17, where in 2016 and 17, pretty much the whole state was defoliated. And so in those years, I mean, I was just seeing a whole lot of caterpillars, you know, first small caterpillars in blueberries and apples and, you know, having people control them at that point, which, you know, when they're, uh, you know, when they're like second instars, like during apple bloom, you can spray a BT and it really does a great job controlling um, gypsy moths. But the problem was that the gypsy moth population was so huge that they were, uh, in the woods and defoliating the woods and then just marching into to apple orchards and blueberries. And at, by, at this point, the caterpillars are like fifth in stars. They're much, much harder to control. 
uh, I probably a delegate insecticide would have been the best thing, but some growers really had a hard time. They felt like they were, you know, making lots of sprays, just trying to save their trees. I do know one yeah, apple grower who he went to his son's wedding and was gone for like a week at a bad time. And he came back to a defoliated orchard that is finally recovering. But, uh, you know, it's, um, yeah, they can do a lot of damage. Uh, that being said, you know, we hadn't had a real outbreak of gypsy moss since like the, you know, 1980, 81 or so. So we went, you know, several decades with it without them being a serious problem. I mean, I'd see them every year and, you know, just they, they weren't in outbreak conditions. Um, so what, what do you think caused that outbreak? So we had really low dry spring. So May and June is when the gypsy moths are out there. So we had really dry spring springs in 2014, 15, and 16. And with the dry springs, you don't have the, um, the fungus that, that mostly has been controlling the gypsy moth populations, that Entomophaga mammaiga, uh, that can't transmit um, from caterpillar to caterpillar like it does in a normal year. Uh, so yeah, to have three very dry springs in a row really led to huge numbers of caterpillars. Did, I did a lot of uh, PR stuff, especially 2015 and 16 um, around, well, winter moth. I've been, you know, educating the public, like lots of little TV spots or radio spots or uh, <laughs> it was, it was, it was uh, quite time consuming. I'll, I'll say that, but just, you know, try and explain to people that I see gypsy moths every year. It's not like, you know, here we have gypsy moths this year. We don't have them you know, other years, because I see them every year, and but they just did get into crazy uh, defoliation. You know, I think the, the biggest populations that we had ever seen, and, and we're attributing that to the dry conditions in, you know, 2000, starting 2014. there are definitely other players in this system. There's a virus and some parasitoids that affect gypsy moth health. But gypsy moth makes a very good example of a sporadic pest that is almost never a problem until it's a serious problem. Unfortunately, these outbreak years are hard to predict. Um, Even more unfortunately, it does sound like they may be associated with extreme weather conditions that come along with climate change. Well, that's it for this episode. My apologies for being such a bummer, um, but my appreciation goes out to Heather Fobert from University of Rhode Island, who saved my butt with some good winter moth information when I needed it. And a special thanks to Brentwood's favorite son, Jason Lightbound, who wrote and performed our theme music. Informed on IPM is a production of University of New Hampshire Cooperative Extension, an equal opportunity educator and employer. All music is used by permission or by Creative Commons licensing. Views and opinions expressed in this podcast are not necessarily those of the university, its trustees, or its volunteers. Inclusion or exclusion of commercial enterprises in this podcast does not equate endorsement. The University of New Hampshire, New Hampshire counties, and the U.S. Department of Agriculture cooperate to provide extension programming in the Granite State. Learn more at extension.unh.eu.